strike up the conversation on Post Show Recaps, bringing you coverage of the labor disputes happening now in television and film. I'm Dr. Amanda, and I'm your host for these conversations. I'm very excited for the interview that we have in store for you today. We are joined by another great guest, actor and SAG After member, Linda Powell. Before we get to that interview, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast by using our RSS feed link. That's postshowrecaps.com slash strike when you search by URL on your podcast player of choice. That's postshowrecaps.com slash strike when you search by URL on your podcast player. And please, if you are so inclined, rate and review the podcast. That really helps people find us. Um, Today, we're going to be joined by Linda Powell, who has had a long career of acting and supporting roles in film and television, appearing in many well-known series such as Chicago Fire, House of Cards, Madam Secretary, and Dope Sick. Um, In addition to that, she's had an extensive work on the stage, uh, appearing in Broadway and off-Broadway productions. Um, Not only ASAC after member, but Linda Powell is also part of the negotiating committee and has a lot of interesting perspective to offer related to that role. Welcome to the podcast, Linda. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. It's wonderful to have you. Um, Before we jump into talking about what is going on with the strikes right now, just a little update. Today, we're talking on September 15th, which is the 137th day of the WGA strike. For context, the longest strike, the longest time that guild has striked has been 188 days. That was in 1988. And SAG-AFTRA joined them on July 14th, now on 64 days into the strike. Um, You know, this is something that's continued to stretch on into the fall, as some people feared uh, when it first started. Um, So we're still very much in the thick of it. And I'm looking forward to hearing your perspectives on how things are going. Um, But before we talk about that, um, can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in the entertainment industry? Well, like a lot of kids, I grew up looking at stuff on TV and film and wondering what it would be like to do that. I went to um, college at William and Mary in Virginia and studied English with a theater minor because I was spending most of my time in the theater department anyway. And I wasn't sure what I was going to do with myself when I got out and um, decided I couldn't imagine not acting anymore. So I came to New York and did two years of a conservatory program and then kind of hit the ground running. I had a a lot of day jobs for the first decade or so of, of my life in the arts. Uh, I kind of had to grow into my type. Um, I was never an ingenue, so I had to get old enough to, to you know, be lawyers and doctors. And, and um, a lot of my work in the beginning was stage, which has always been my first love. But then maybe into my 30s, it started to transition and do more TV and film. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I started to get to know people who were working on the union stuff and who were talking about union stuff. Uh, I started paying the most attention around the time, maybe 10, 12 years ago, when people were starting to talk about merger. Mm-hmm. So um, I ended up kind of getting pulled in by friends to, to, to run for the board. And I was part of the first board of the merged union. And so I've kind wow. of been in service ever since. And that's mm-hmm. that's. Um, then my story, I'm I'm now vice president of the New York local, and I'm also on the negotiating committee. This is my 
third or fourth negotiation of the TV theatrical contracts. So um, it's an exciting time. It's a complicated time. Um, when you said those numbers of how long the Writers Guild have been out, it's it's a sobering time. Yeah. Um, but I'm still hopeful that we're going to come out at the end with um, a contract that that addresses all the things that are so in need of addressing right now. It's almost like cyclically <laughs> there comes a need to strike because the industry has changed so much. Right, right. Um, well, I, especially given your uh, perspective as somebody who's been involved in a number of these negotiations and serving on the negotiating committee right now, I'm I'm really eager to hear your thoughts on all of the developments. Um, before we talk about that, I would I would love to hear a little bit about how the because you mentioned, you know, as the entertainment industry evolves and changes, there becomes this need to renegotiate the terms and 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 maybe it, the, the the negotiations go in this direction where a strike is the is a necessary tactic. But what are some of these changes that you've observed in the entertainment industry over the course of your career and how are they affecting the lives of performers? Um. You go from having three networks, you know, like when I was a kid, three networks and maybe the channels like Channel 20, which had all the reruns on it. And then the cable industry starts to take over from the three networks you're used to. And you see our contracts start to adjust to the fact that cable exists. Mm -hmm. And then as cable kind of grew into the behemoth and and became the the, the real way that people got television and got entertainment, uh, Netflix shows up and at first it's just Netflix and and this streaming thing is a new thing and it's a new business and how do we adjust this contract which you know is rooted in 1960s television to <laughs> address the streaming model and then mm-hmm. gradually you see everyone following Netflix over a cliff and that's where we find ourselves today. And I'm not sure where the industry is going to be next year. I'm not sure they know where the industry yeah. is going to be next year. So it's really complicated. And it's it's usually driven by technology and the way that technology changes. When you started to be able to stream content and nobody quite was sure what that was going to mean for the business models. And it has you know, been a slow drip to the situation mm-hmm. we find ourselves in today. Yeah, the business models is is a really interesting point because here we are right now with um you know you mentioned Netflix you know and then everybody following Netflix off of the cliff <laughs> um and I think that that's a really interesting metaphor there I know that you were involved in House of Cards which of course is the uh-huh. show that made Netflix what it is in the content production side of things and sort of started where we are now, where all of a sudden everybody has a streamer and this has become this model of this uh, video on demand, no ads. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And these silos them. where all the content is in like little silos. I remember when Netflix came to us and said, we want to, we want to negotiate a contract just with you because we are going to start making our own. We're going to do more and more of making our own content. And that was, that was a shift that they made. And, you know, they put a lot of money into that. And then there's a shift of everyone putting their content into their own silos. But how many silos are are, are people going to pay for is a question. Mm-hmm. And um, how do you monetize something that is going to live in one place forever, um, regardless of how many eyeballs are on it? Um, and how do you pay the 
the people who make that for you. Right. Right. So that seems to be like the gambit, right? The idea drive up subscribers, drive up subscribers, offer ad free content. The subscriptions are going to pay for themselves. But when the subscriptions don't pay for themselves and they have to generate all of this new content to stay competitive, then the way that that Ted Sarandos and the way that the executives decided to make those balance sheets work is by paying less and less and less to the and writers. Also, and when they're trying to make so much content, they're trying, they tried to, in order to get subscribers, it was like, let's just make a lot of stuff so we can get as many people as, as, as we can think of shows that they would like, because they'll come and join onto our service because they want to see that show. So you, you get a lot of content, which in a way, was great for people who uh, underrepresented voices mm-hmm. and, and underrepresented populations and quirky things and blah, blah, blah. But also you kind of spread everything so thin, they're only going to spend so much money. And so they're start, it's pushing costs down in order to keep the content um, creation as, as big as they think they need or as large a, a volume as they think they need. And also because of the way the, the ownership of studios is now, um, the, the vertical integration, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the decisions are basically about bottom line. And so it's like, let's just keep the costs as low as we can. And that's resulted in uh, unsustainable livings for a lot of the labor that is making the content. Um, I had a friend say to me, well, if you get all this stuff, do you think they'll make less? And I said, if they make less and people can make a living, is that a good trade-off or do we all just want to make five cents, you know? Right. Right. Um, so that does seem to be like, I mean, so this in some ways, Linda is a reckoning, right? Like the cheap content machine that they needed to have a game of Thrones twice a year. It didn't pay them as much and it Mm -hmm. paid us even less. Right. So, um, that's why, I mean, where are we going to be in two or three years from now? You know, we'll see. Um, one of the things I think they 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 neglect to understand is that we, when they say to us, we're not sure where we're going, we're not sure we're going to be able to make money off of this, so therefore you can't ask for the things you're asking for, we're a cost. Mm-hmm. We're a cost. And so we see how much money you spend on other things. Um, we're just asking you to spend more on um your creative labor. And it's still a very tiny percentage of their whole budget. So the whole, we're not making money argument really doesn't hold any water. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, No, I've seen, I've seen the numbers of um, estimating what the overall cost of both of, um, so this is actually, I'm looking at the cost of the WGA proposals and you can see that the share of revenue for Disney, Netflix, Warner Brothers Discovery, it's less than, uh, than than a percentile point in many cases it's less than 0.1 percentage points. So this is a yeah. very very minuscule uh percentage of their revenues, like the money that they're bringing in. Um, you know, it would cost them pennies to actually to meet our demands, to meet Absolutely. the demands, to pay to pay what to pay what you're worth. Um, and and when you look at this sheet, so you mentioned. Um, individually negotiating with Netflix early Mm -hmm. on. And so the AMPTP is the body that the writers at Guild and SAG-AFTRA is negotiating with right now. And that includes Mm -hmm. the the traditional television networks, um, the legacy studios, and then Mm -hmm. also 
Netflix, Netflix Amazon, Amazon, Apple. Apple. Um, so how has this process of negotiation changed, Linda, from your perspective, as these different players have entered the arena? Well, it's been harder every cycle to to get to a deal because I think it's been harder for them in their room every cycle to come to an agreement. They the way that their votes happen, um, any one person can can keep any one proposal from being agreed to. So mm-hmm. they have to have a consensus in their room. Um, I, I would love to be a fly on their wall in, in their room because I have members on the on the picket line asking me who is the biggest problem. And I I can't, I can't say for sure. Mm-hmm. I think probably on any given proposal, it might be a different company that doesn't want this one and another company that doesn't want this one. The fact that they're all negotiating together is I think why you're seeing two strikes right now, because it's it's harder for them to negotiate with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it becomes harder the more that the, the business models get um, so diverse right. and the more they're competitors, they're competitors. And some like Amazon, do we say Amazon? Amazon. Amazon. Yes. We are such a small part of Amazon's business model. So um, yeah, for context- what, what is their position is their room? Is their position that we don't have to do anything because we don't care if we have them or not, or is their position in the room? We should give them whatever we want. What's the big deal? I can't, I don't know which it is, right. but I know Amazon doesn't think the same way as Paramount does. You know? Exactly. Yeah, no, it's a great <laughs> point. Amazon. So you uh, were in the Amazon feature film, the report. Um, mm-hmm. So thinking this is, you know, this is not the way that Amazon makes their money, right? Amazon cares no. about whether, you know, I'm buying paper towels online and right. Like that's a much bigger share. Yeah. And if going to see the report on their platform means you pass by, you want to be a prime member or whatever mm-hmm. it, it's value added to them. So this is for context, this uh, cost percent of revenue for the meeting, the demands of the WGA proposal for Amazon is of their revenue. So this is a very, very, very tiny, small thing to Amazon. Amazon will be able to survive this strike no matter how long it goes, if they create no new content at all. And in a way, Linda, like, wouldn't it be great for Amazon and Apple if some of these other players end up falling out because they can't survive this strike? And at the end of the day, it's Apple and Amazon and Disney. Everything lives there. And everything lives there. Yeah, that's I think the problem you you put your finger on the problem in their room and and who has the incentive to make a deal and who doesn't. Um it's it's the model is broken. Uh and I think it's following on the cable TV model broke. And so everybody came over to to because we all have friends who are like, my cable bill's too big, or why am I paying for Fox? And that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And and I cut the cord myself. Uh, last year because I was like, I think I could do a better deal if I switched over here. Uh, I think they saw the writing on the wall. I wouldn't be surprised if we end up in a few years with um, ad-supported streaming television without as many silos or just one platform, one or two platforms where you can watch a lot of different stuff Mm -hmm. um, might be the, you know, the future. That's me kind of, you know, pretending I can figure out what might happen. Well, the ad supported thing is definitely 
appearing again. I think that yeah. this promise, the promise that you could have ad free content on demand. It seems that that was a little bit of fool's gold. So for example, on October 12th, there's an upcoming uh, price hike for both Hulu and Disney mm-hmm. plus. So Disney Plus's ad free prices will increase from 1099 a month to 1390 month to 1399 a month. And the ad free plan is going to jump up to $17.99 a month. Um, Hulu is also going to increase their rates. So they seem to really be wanting their customers to go to their uh, advertiser um, plan because maybe you can't make television without advertising. <laughs> Hello, and that would be great for us because we've also struggled with the lack of advertising because of so many of our performers who who make money doing commercials and commercials mm. have disappeared as streaming has taken over. Um, the, mo- the model of ads supporting television is actually good for everyone, <laughs> uh, except, you know, those of us who fast is consumers who uh-huh. actually don't want to have to watch the ads. And now they've been um, conditioned to not have them. So it's, can you really go back to that for everything? It's going to be a question what will consumers accept it? Um, but I think if things start to cost more, um, then the pendulum might shift right. back. I do think ad supported is, is going to be a big thing in the next few years. Yeah, it seems like I I think that that would be a smart um, prediction that ad support is coming back. It's already started coming back. I mean, we saw with HBO Max go to HBO Max, go turn and then and then morph into Max, sort of priming us to get ready for this idea that we're going to start to see ads yeah. on their platform. Um, and one of the I think one of the possible upsides to having um, advertisers more involved is um, there might be a drive for more transparency and viewership numbers because the Mm -hmm. advertisers are really going to want to know how many eyeballs they have on their advertisements, um, even though some of the streamers have been pretty obtuse, abstruse about sharing those numbers with the actual content creators themselves. Yeah, with the content creators. And and for us, um, we have a proposal on the table for revenue sharing and it's, they wouldn't, need, they wouldn't discuss it at all. Um, it's really like a line in the sand for them. I think the writers are also have a, uh, at least a transparency ask in mm-hmm. their uh, proposal package. And it's been like a poison pill for them for a while because I don't think they want their competitors knowing the information. And I don't think that they necessarily want Wall Street knowing the information about, mm-hmm. I mean, who watches which shows and how much or how few people may watch some shows. Um, so that's a, a way in which the model is broken and I don't think it's working for anybody. And I do mm-hmm. think that they're gonna have to move on transparency at some point, I'm hoping it's this cycle. And mm-hmm. it's something we're definitely, it's it's one of our priorities. Because we have we have people who are in hits, you know, hits mm-hmm. and, and they're making the same very small streaming residuals that um, everyone else is. And the, their argument is we don't share in revenue with you. And it's, it's like, well, you need to start. 
because it used to be that we we had a piece of a success when it when it went into syndication. Mm-hmm. We had a piece of success when something was sold into different um, media. You know, you'd sell to DVD or even somebody selling from their studio to another streamer gets us uh, income. But now that everything's siloed off, there's no share in this in the in millions of Americans appreciating the work that you did you're still not making anything off of. And you look at like Squid Game, I think that right. uh, writer, he's, you know, it's even worse for for places where there are no unions. Yes. Yeah, no, and I, and I, and I read something about, um about how some of these foreign content creators who don't have the same union protectors, ha- protections have like suffered under this, um you know, uh, inequitable revenue sharing or no revenue sharing, even worse. And, you know, it makes me think about, you know, there's some, I think, and I think the listeners to this podcast are, are, are more, are more savvy about this, but, um you know, you'll see on social media, Aaron Paul talking about how he doesn't get any residual jewels from Breaking Bad being on Netflix. And then people will say, well, isn't he a big star? And didn't he get lots of money when he performed, you know, when he shot the series originally? And, um, you know, Linda, can you speak a little bit to how important that uh, residuals um, is to people who have careers in the industry who might not be Brian Cranston and Aaron Paul? (laughs) Well, our work is, 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 it's, sporadic and and it's sporadic by the nature of it I, that's never going to change actors work is always going to be sporadic there's not going to be unless you're like i don't know mariska hargitay you're going to do mm-hmm. law and order svu god bless the people who can get a gig like that i work from gig to get job to job to job i mix it between theater and i mix it between tv and and sometimes my tv gig is a day and sometimes my TV gig is a few weeks. Sometimes I'll have a couple months on a movie. And then there are months and months where I don't have anything. And the thing that residuals provide is income that we can't even predict when it comes, but usually there's a stream of like checks coming in and you go, oh, thank God, here's this residual to help me get over this hump. Mm -hmm. And also in terms of like qualifying for health insurance, if you're not working for a few months and your qualification period is within in those few months fall within a qualification period where you're a little light, um, residuals can count towards you qualifying for your health insurance. So as those go down, the people able to, to meet their nut for insurance goes down. Mm-hmm. And also that, I mean, we have a proposal in the, on the table around um, advanced pay of residuals, which has been in the contract forever, but they've found a way to um, abuse it. Mm. <laughs> uh some members like getting advanced pay means we're we're going to guess that this is the amount of residuals. We're going to prepay you what the residuals will probably be on this job. And a lot of higher tier folks will get this advanced pay of residuals, but um, the streamers use it much more than it had been used in the past. And it's lowering people's quote because it's being counted as part of your quote when it used ah, to be on top of your quote. Okay. Um, they have agreed to a cap on how much they can advance pay to the residuals. They have agreed to. Um, so they're rolling the residual payment that you would have gotten, you know, after- and they're, they're paying it to you up front. And, mm-hmm. and for some people, that means maybe I would have never gotten these residuals. It's, mm-hmm. it's a gamble. So I'm getting it up front. So that's good. But what's happening is it's, it's, um, it's, 
collapsing people's quotes because they're burying the residual mm-hmm. payment into how much we're paying you this much. And this is your quote. This is what you're used to getting paid. And they're hiding that the advance pay is. So we've said, okay, we're going to cap the amount of a person's income that you're uh, the amount of uh, residuals you're allowed to prepay, which they've agreed mm-hmm. to, but they refuse to agree to make it a separate check. Hmm. And they refuse to agree to make it um, like a, a rider instead of like they're they're burying it, uh-huh. and they're and it makes it impossible for the union to keep track of it when it's not a separate check. And so the fact that they're going to agree to the terms but not to agree to just the administration of the terms is obviously because you want to continue to abuse it. Mm-hmm. They're um, finding the they're they're building in the loopholes. They're building in the loopholes. It's mm-hmm. the same way with the AI proposal, which you know I I do see a possible path for us um, to an agreement on AI, provided they stop pretending that the loopholes that are there mm-hmm. aren't there around um, consent. And generative AI is a different issue. I'm not sure where the deal is there, but in terms of like members working with informed consent and compensation, I do think there's a deal on the, there's a path to a deal if they come a little bit our way. Yeah. Let's talk about what is happening in AI because we, we've talked about AI on this podcast before it figures both in the WGA negotiations and also SAG after they're, there's the related issues, but they are somewhat different. The, the issues that are facing um, both of those different professions. Um, I saw that there was a headline just uh, this week on September 13th, Sony pictures, entertainment chief, Tony, Vince Sequeira urges guilds to embrace common ground solution on AI. You can't get in the way of technology. Um, so Linda, can you speak to what some of these issues are and what the position is of SAG-AFTRA on how AI can be ethically used in a way that the guild would be comfortable with? We absolutely understand that we can't stop the technology. It's going to be used. We just want to make sure that we're protected when it's used. And for us, that means... Um, informed consent. And by informed consent, that means at the time that we sign our contract, we know what this production um, is allowed to do with our digital double. If they create a digital double of us or create a, a digital double of our voice, we know how they plan to use it. And if during the course of that production, they decide, oh, we also want to do this, they have to come back to me to renegotiate that. It can't go for the length of the production. You can't change I have to know up front, you're going to be, it's going to be used for this special effect. It's going to be used if we need to loop. It's, um, you can't say, oh, we want to add a scene. Let's use the double. You have to come back to me if, mm-hmm. if, if you're going to create, redo a scene, or if you're going to decide that there's, you know, nudity that you, that wasn't in there before. Right. You know, I mean, they're going to have the ability yes. that nobody will know it. It's not me. There will come a time and it's not that far away when mm-hmm. they can create me. And no one will know I didn't do it. So I need to know what will you be able to make me do or make it look like I'm doing and say no and not get hired if that's my choice or say yes, but be secure that that's going to stick. And we want it to be only used. You can't, it's for that production only. And then there's compensation. If you're going to create a whole new scene, what would I have been paid if I'd come do that scene? There's those kind of things need to be worked out. You can't just... 
use the double to 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 make up for work that you would have brought me in for mm-hmm. um, because that's not gonna we're not gonna negotiate our our living away um I mean this seems like such a reasonable request and and this is it feels like important new ground that you know SAGAFTRA is 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 pushing that is going to come to effect probably all of us, right? At some point. I mean, this is your likeness. This is your voice. If somebody could put words in your mouth that you would never say, that you don't feel comfortable saying, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a very scary and, you know, very real and very, um, you know, close future that we're, that we're staring down. And I, and I, you know, I, none of us think we can stop it. You know, I mm -hmm. think this, this, this thing is moving. And it's really, it's a fascinating time to be in the room. It's a fascinating place to be. It's a fascinating conversations to have in the negotiating room and, you know, to get the proposals and sit with my fellow committee members and talk about this. And, you know, my mind got blown a couple of times just saying, I'm right now talking about my digital double. And do I even want to do this? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm here to help create the rules, but when push comes to shove, am I going to do this? And it's, I think somebody younger than me, it's going to be a normal part of their life. But for others of us in the room, it's like, this is crazy, right? <laughs> it's, I mean, <laughs> I it's unnerving. It's, it's so it, fast. It, it Suddenly feels it's like, like sci-fi. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, saw, it, yeah. I was, I was sitting, you know, watching Joan is awful on Netflix, uh, the yeah. um, Black Mirror episode that aired. Yeah. Gosh, it was like this spring or summer. And it was like, oh, wow, that's funny. And then all everybody was sudden, talking about it. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, this becomes this big issue at the center of the strikes. And of course it has. I mean, we've all seen, I think at this point now, um, these deep fakes on the internet where it looks like somebody's doing mm-hmm. something and it's completely digital. And um, this technology has advanced so quickly. I mean, on the manner of weeks and months, um, just yeah, thinking about- Yeah. And I'm about- sure there's stuff that they can do that we haven't seen yet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in our conversations with them, they're very, and I don't think that they're blowing smoke. It's like, we just want to use this for, um, you know, what if we're doing a superhero movie and we want to use you to fly? And can we do this and can we do that? Do you want to limit our abilities to do this? And all of the things that they were describing, it's, it's a lot of like superhero and, mm-hmm. and you know, sci-fi, Marvel, you know, big budget things and how much they can do with the with the technology that they weren't able to do before which is exciting to them and they don't want to limit on their toys and i'm excited too some of the stuff is going to be really cool but our job in the room is like we're not trying to limit your use of your toys you're tr- we're trying to limit your use of us mm-hmm. and we're trying to make sure that just because you would never do that or your studio would never do abc we have to have in our contract that ABC can't happen. We can't like take your take your good assurances. Well, that's not what we'd want it for. It's like, okay, good. Then can we write that down? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and then a- those are the places where you start to go, well, why do we have to, you, 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 we, it says that, that we were like, no, it doesn't exactly say that. And we need it to exactly mm-hmm. say that. So I think that's the kind of thing with the AI, but the generative AI is a different situation where can they use their library content to do research mm-hmm. and their live? I just, it's a podcast. So I say, I put research in quotes um, to do research about how to maybe create 
synthetic performers, which are performers created out of, you know, lots of different input and generated by AI that don't resemble of any of us that will not look like me, but might have my tone of voice or the way I say mm-hmm. teens and somebody else's eyes and somebody else's ears, and it'll all be scrambled together. Can they use their library content for that? And they think that the contract as it exists allows them to because of um, they own it. Mm-hmm. But our contracts never agreed to that kind of use of that material. So um, that's going to be, I, th- I think I can see a path on the other side if they're willing to dot those I's and cross those T's. The generative AI, I think we have a real disagreement about. So I'm curious when we back get back into the room, whether they will still hold to that because mm-hmm. um, we're certainly not going to agree to something that will put many of us out of work if you start creating synthetic performers. Uh, they'll probably be able to do it with other people, right. but you, we're not going to agree to do it with us. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, I think that this is another place where what the uh, entertainment industry is doing is really prescient because, um, you know, this is really the question is, um, you know, can these tech companies, can um, the entertainment companies take mine data, anybody's data from anywhere, mm-hmm. and then use that to generate new content without any attribution, without any um, giving any credit, without any compensation. And, uh, you know, this is relevant for anybody who- The whole world. The whole world. Anybody who <laughs> produces, who writes anything, who has any sort of digital footprint. I mean, if I post a picture of my kid on social media, could that become part yeah. of a training model for- um, It might for be ad- already for all you know. Yeah, it, it probably We'll never is. actually know what they used for some of this stuff. Um, and I think the directors got something in their, in their deal that said, that said the work of a director is done by a human, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, while they might be able to go out and gather not their library content, but some other content out in the world to create synthetic performers, if we could possibly have something that, you know, in our contract that makes... Actors are, and actors are human. And actors yeah. are human, you know? Yeah. And I know I'd be a big lift, frankly. Uh-huh. Wow. Wow. <laughs> we need a lot of leverage to 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 get them to sign off on actors are human. Uh-huh. Something they, that's they seemed... have these toys they want to play with. Yeah. Something that seemed like a, such a ridiculous tautological statement, uh, you know, just a few years ago is now something that you would have to bite tooth and nail for <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and, and feel very dubious that you could be successful. It's really, yeah. uh, it's really such a sign of the times. And Linda, that sort of speaks to this other point I, I wanted you to talk to about, um, you know, how often you get a chance to negotiate these terms. So I know that it's, it's every three years that you're contract. Three years. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, can you put that in context with the, the technology changing, just how important this moment in time is and why striking now and why getting the deal that you need now is so important? A couple of reasons. Uh, I, I got asked in the first days of the strike, you know, the interviews on the line the reporters where they were like everybody is saying ai is is still in the future why are you why are you holding so fast to it right now it's, it's a it's not in the future um they're already able to do a lot of stuff and we know the capability and it's it's growing and and progressing so quickly that i think what they're able to do next month what they're going to be able to do 
in three months is going to blow our minds. Um, so I don't think we can wait to put fences and boundaries around that. I think we've all seen with chat GPT and whatever the name of the other one where you can make cartoons and the stuff. The Dolly mini. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. so many now. I have only played with a few, but we all are playing with it now. We're all like seeing what can be done. Um, so I don't think you can wait to, to put fences around that and boundaries around that. The, the way they're saying to the writers, let's, we'll agree that we'll talk about this in, in the next year. We'll, we'll get together and talk about it again. It's, it's, it's here. And um, there's too much abuse that can happen if we don't put the fences on that. Now we're asking for what, you know, if you look at some of the other unions uh, outside of our industry right now, getting double digit raises in their, in their mm-hmm. negotiations, our ask isn't that big right now. We, we came in at 15, we're at 11 now, and they're offering five. Um, five puts us at 2020 wages over the next three years. Um, we're already underwater with inflation. So to leave with um, five, I think would, would not be acceptable. And that's, you know, you can't, you can't continue to, to, to do 2%, 2%, 2% when the, when the um, inflation is doing what it is and you start from behind every time if you do that. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And I just want to do highlight the points that you just made, Linda, because, you know, AI gets a lot of press and attention because it's this exciting, new, sexy mm -hmm. thing. But a big part of what the Guild is actually fighting for is just raises that keep the pace with inflation. And, you know, we're saying inflation, we're at a moment right now where we're seeing historic inflation. People know this when they, you know, go to the grocery store, the prices of things are changing. But these are wages that keep the price, that keep pace with inflation going back now 10, 15 years that wages have been relatively stagnant for Mm -hmm. actors. According to my research, I mean, we've seen some of the numbers about the percentage of guild members who make the minimums required for health insurance, um, which is, I think, only 12% of guild members make Mm -hmm. that minimum value to qualify for the SAG-AFTRA health insurance, which puts a number of people in the low income or poverty range of income. So wages have not kept pace with inflation in the in your industry, Linda, going back, you know, 20 years now. We've been getting like cost of living size inflations for a while, but mm-hmm. the inflation of the past few years has been has been we haven't been able to keep up with that. Mm-hmm. Our our membership, because we're actors, people go in and out of good years. So it's not like a person with a full-time job and and the wages have stayed this or that. People's income goes in and out. But what has happened with the with the streaming model and the explosion of content and the 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 pushing down of our wages um, is that people who are series regulars are not making a living. People who grab the brass ring are still struggling. And that's, that's because of the wage depression. It's also because of the change in the, in the um, amount of episodes mm-hmm. per season that has changed the model completely. So somebody works for, you know, eight episodes of a series, six to eight episodes of a series, and then is held off the market because of 
options and exclusivity clauses, which we've actually just this past cycle been able to tackle. But for the past few years, people have been struggling because they've been held off the market in a way Mm -hmm. that that was a a remnant of 22 episode seasons. And then you get a vacation and go back to work. And instead you're doing six episodes and they're still insisting that you're exclusive to them. And uh, they, everything was broken by the way that things are just produced differently now. Yeah, The world is different now. And um, and an episode is not an episode anymore, right? When you're talking about a 22 uh, episode, a season procedural versus one of these, you know, 10 yeah, episodes. We have lo- really long movies now. Right. It's, it's really, like- it's like, it's like you're watching, you're making 10 feature films and you're off yeah. of the market for, yeah. you know, six months to a year and you're still, but you're, they're, they're still treating you like they can pay you for an episode exactly. and it's the exactly. same unit and of work. And some of that has been addressed. We have been able to address that, but we're, um, we're still pushing back on pieces of, of the old model that they want to hang on to. And um, I think we're going to be able to tackle most of it because we have the leverage this time um, once we get into the room and because it's so clear to, to the whole industry that the model is now broken. They know themselves. I think I've heard them say in their own press, we broke it, mm-hmm. you know, they broke it. Um, let's go back to cable television. <laughs> if it's going to be like this, you know, mm-hmm. and it's funny because a lot of their, their platforms, you'll see some of the shows that are most popular, the suits thing. Everybody's yeah. watching suits or like yeah. the procedurals and the sitcoms, uh-huh. which are coming from classic television. A lot of the like prestige shows that I love, but um, I'll have to try and think where is that? Where do I watch it? Um, which platform is that on? And right. as they start raising prices, how many are people going to keep? Yeah, people more and more. If you're just watching one yeah. show on that on Hulu, you know, in, in my world, you know, on post show recaps, we cover television and film and we are lo- bread and butter. We love the prestige series. You know, there's always, yeah. you know, the big, that's the, those are, they're the best to talk about. Um, but increasingly consumers that I know, they sign on when the show that they like is on. And then when and it's then over, they drop it. And then maybe the next show is on a different streamer. So they subscribe to that and then they drop it. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't- and I think the silos are already coming down because I think they're seeing that. So why am I holding on to this content when I can maybe send it over there and make a little a little money off? So I think it was Warner Brothers or somebody said they're going to start allowing themselves to sell shows to other streamers because otherwise they're not monetizing their own stuff either. Yeah. Warner Brothers Discovery CFO said uh, this week on streaming that quality content has been given away well below fair market value. Um, This is, you know, sort of the, like you said, Linda, the kind of reckoning that this business model doesn't work. It hasn't worked for the labor that it takes to create it. Um, the The CEOs are starting to see that 
that this doesn't work. And there's been this kind of gradual recreation of the cable television landscape on streaming, where now it Mm -hmm. is the mix of people watching the procedurals, watching the sitcoms, um, watching, having ads. um, And that seems to be what they're sort of slowly rebuilding. And the question is, you know, are consumers going to keep on subscribing or is something completely different going to take its place. Um, I think that it's a fascinating time and having these dual strikes has really revealed a lot of the dysfunction in, in the business. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and hopefully, you know, we're building something with this contract negotiation. Hopefully the, the sacrifices of these two strikes is going to build something that protects us as they try and figure out the next thing they do, because, while they're figuring out their business models, we're trying to eat, you know? And so, uh, especially when they say we won't share our revenue with you, it's like, well, okay, then you really absolutely have to pay us. Yeah. Yeah. Because this is, I mean, yeah. So, so, you know, the, the guild, the striking guild members are suffering strikes are painful. Um, People don't like to do it. It's a, it's a measure of last resort that uh, unattributed comment from one of the, uh, the network CEOs that they want people to lose their houses. Um, There, this seems to be what the tactic has been. Um, the AMPTP has been, I would love to talk to shift to talking more about how the negotiations have gone to this point. Um, mm-hmm. The AMPTP has been more engaged recently with the WGA, it seems, and with SAG-AFTRA. What has the impact of having these two simultaneous strikes been on SAG-AFTRA's ability to negotiate with the AMPTP? Well, we haven't, we haven't, I'll say this, um, the Writers Guild strike, which we were in complete solidarity with even before we went on strike ourselves, it, it um, laid the groundwork for our members who were already engaged and interested and angry and feeling like they're going for all of that. We should go for all of that too. So when we asked for a strike authorization, we got a higher turnout than we've ever had. And we got yeah, 90, over 90% strike 98%, Amazing. Which we were hoping would mean something when we went in the room. And instead we got stonewalled on a lot of stuff. Um, there's just basic, there was a basic feeling of that they didn't want to do any structural change. That we could make some changes around the edges on some stuff. And we got a movement on a lot of little things that we needed and that We'll be back, still be on the table when we go back. We have some good tentative agreements on the table, but the big picture things, the structural change things, the revenue sharing, the um, the outsized uh, minimums increase, the advanced pay situation, the um, AI, uh, and our pension health caps, which haven't been raised in 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 too long, and are members are suffering because of it. There's just basic things that were refused to be addressed. And so I don't think that they took seriously our resolve, that they thought we were as serious. And I don't know why, because we came in with a 98% strike authorization. Um, So when we left, I think we brought a lot of energy back to the writers who were starting to to feel some fatigue at that point. And Mm -hmm. I think the solidarity between us has been has been amazing and has helped both unions um, 
in a way to stay, stay strong together. And I, I don't see any wavering in our solidarity in the future. Um, when we left the table, they said, we, you cannot, you, we won't, you won't hear for us, from us for some time because we don't believe that you should go on a strike. We should just keep negotiating. And we said, we can keep negotiating while we're striking. Uh-huh. Um, but we've already extended for 12 days. Our members mm-hmm. weren't particularly thrilled with our extending for 12 days. Um, we thought we'd get some progress and we haven't, but we are absolutely ready and willing and able to continue to talk to you, but we are calling a strike. Um, they have not reached out to us since. They have not called us back to the table since. I think that they're going to try and get their writer's deal done first. Mm-hmm. If, and the writers are going back into the room on Monday. I know that they stalled yes. a little bit. And hopefully when they first went back in, I was hopeful. And then the back and forth has made me wonder if the AMPTP is really ready to make a deal. And that's just Linda's opinion. Nothing inside. It's just right. probably re- reading the same things you read. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I don't think that we're going to go back in the room until the writers, either the writers just say we're done. We're not talking anymore, or it really reaches a standstill that they, they, there's no point in them talking anymore. They might turn to us or if the writers make a deal, they'll then turn to us and make a deal. But until this current round of, of writers, AMPTP um, reaches its whatever conclusion it reaches. um, I don't think we'll be back in the room. Um, And that's, fair. I mean, they, they, I do, I don't think they can negotiate with both at once. I think it's too much bandwidth. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm prepared to wait for them to finish with the writers. Um, I mean, we're talking about the, the hardship from the strike. We are all used to not working and then working and working. Yeah. Two months, two months is not a drought for most of mm-hmm. us, for many of us. Um, however, we are also aware of the damage that's being done to all sorts of other people as right. a result of our strikes. None of us are, are neither Writers Guild or SAG-AFTRA takes lightly what's happening to the IATSE members who are not able to work because we're on strike or all the um, industries that support TV and film that are suffering because we're on strike. Um, but there's no point in coming back if we don't have a deal that's gonna help us make a living. We can't continue with the terms that we have now, there wouldn't, yeah. we, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be, we wouldn't be fulfilling our purpose. Yeah. I've heard guild members uh, express the resolve in, in the way that, you know, they already feel like their careers are under this existential threat that. Yeah. And I've, that, I've heard writers saying, it's like, are they kidding? They don't pay us anything. So I don't know why they think. <laughs> Yeah, it's like you, you, they don't know that they're dealing with people who've been surviving on ramen and cereal and, you yeah. know, picking up side hustles to pay rent. And this is, this is, this is the, the beast that the industry has created. And, yeah. um, and, and, and I, and I, and I do have, uh, I do have a lot of faith that, 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 that this that you guys can hold out until you get the deal that you absolutely need to maintain the viability of these careers and also like i mean part of it is um you know the actors and the writers that i've that i've talked to take tremendous pride in the products of their work and feel mm-hmm. like you know some of these changes are making it harder to do good work like what will it absolutely. mean right if scripts are written by ai and then you have a script editor who just goes through and makes a few changes and then that's all we have to watch on television or even something like you know more um analog uh the the 
they have started building in overtime just into their budgets and into their schedules. It's like, we're just going to go overtime so we can do this shoot that should take nine days. We're going to do it in seven and we're going to, you're going to get paid because we, we invaded your turnaround. We're going to give you a meal penalty. Blah, blah, blah. So they're saving money and we're working without the time to go home mm-hmm. and learn the lines for the next day. We're coming back on set tired. And that's not just we're tired. Boo hoo. It's I want to do a good job. And you haven't you're not giving me the time I need to do the work you hired me to do, you know? Yeah. And it's, so it's it's as much a pride in our process and a, and, a, and, a, and a belief in the quality of our work and the, and the respect that that should have as it is, you know, we need to eat. You didn't give us a meal penalty. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's not about the meal penalty it is, but it's also about you need to give us a break. We're on screen with ourselves. And if you're bringing, if you're releasing me at 3 a.m. and bringing me back at 10, um, I'm, I have to learn the lines for the next day and I'm tired and your makeup's going to have to work harder on my face because it's starting to show, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's content to them. And it's, um, I don't want to say art. I don't want to sound precious about it, but it's, it's our craft. Right. And we care about it. Um, I think that 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 pride in 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 the work is really important and I've heard you know people talk about how there's lots of producers like calling it the AMPTP the Alliance of Motion Picture mm-hmm. and Television Producers is almost a misnomer because there's producers out there who really care about what doing what it takes to get to create quality products and who Yeah care. I read that article I was like I know we know it's not you yeah <laughs> we know it's not you <laughs> I mean, Um, that's the vertical integration I talk about. I don't, I mean, in the beginning, I felt like when my first couple of negotiations, we were negotiating with studios and now I'm not, you know, how far up the chain do I have to go to find out who is actually has permission to say yes to us, you know, who, what corporation has the permission to say yes to us? And do they know anything at all about what it is we do? The answer is no, they don't, they, they don't know how a TV set works. They've never been on one. And to, to your to your point about, you know, how they build into their budget, you know, some of these meal penalties and overtime extensions, um, you know, those those measures. I mean, I spoke with a uh, um, with Mary Flynn, who was a uh, a background performer who was telling mm-hmm. who was explaining how some of these issues have affected, uh, you know, background actors and stunt performers. And, um, you know, that a lot of those protections about overtime and meal penalties are there also because of safety, because human beings need mm-hmm. to sleep and eat. And, you know, in order to be able to safely be a, on set, that there were laws that were put in place after, you know, people have actually lost their lives because of mm-hmm. working when they're too exhausted or leaving sets too late after not enough sleep. So it, you know, these are workplace abuses and not just little budget items that you can add to a balance sheet when you actually, you know, see what happens when somebody's on set all day in hair and makeup, having one of these long days, um, standing around in costume, that there's actually a human cost and to acknowledge that human labor and not just see it as, oh, well, if we pay everybody this much more, we can get away with keeping them an extra two hours on a 10 hour day. 
Absolutely. And some of the SAG-AFTRA rules are stronger than the other union's rules. And they, they depend on our rules being kept mm. so that they're not there in the middle of the night. And it's, it's a vicious cycle because once you're pushed one day, then the next day gets pushed and the next day and, and the, the, everybody's working at less than, I'm not going to say less than hundred percent, less than 70%, less than 60% of their capability. Um, Linda, are there any other, uh, are there any other details of what SAG-AFTRA is fighting for that you, that you wish that, you know, the general public had a better understanding of, you know, I, I mentioned before that, you know, when I see discussions of this on social media, sometimes there's the impression that, you know, this is all about, you know, the big Hollywood movie stars not being mm-hmm. satisfied with, you know, making as much money as they do. I think we've, you know, done a good job of, of illustrating how the majority of SAG-AFTRA is, is not uh, these Hollywood movie stars with household names, but, um, you know, working people who put a lot of their labor into making profits for these big corporations. Are there other details of the negotiation or the ask from SAG-AFTRA that have gotten less attention that you'd like to highlight? I'm trying to think and nothing jumps to mind because I do think that um, the country has kind of turned its attention to what we're doing. I think that we struck a chord in a way with everyone who's feeling this income gap that tends to exist in so many industries in our country right now. And because of our high profile faces, we got attention. And I'm proud of the way that we've kind of laid our priorities out there. Um, I would just say that whenever anybody's, there's still occasionally that Hollywood strike out there. Mm -hmm. And just to understand we're we're in there fighting for actors. We're in there fighting for actors who, you recognize we're in there fighting for actors who you kind of think look familiar. Mm -hmm. And we're in there fighting for actors who are in the background that um, make the scenes feel alive, but are not supposed to draw attention. And they work just as hard as the rest of us. We're in there fighting for stunt performers. We're in there fighting for dancers. We've got singers issues on the table as well. And, And all of the issues share the same kind of disconnect between the same kind of struggle, the same kind of um, obstacle that is existing because of all the money shifted to the top at some point over the past decade. And it's Mm -hmm. happened in every industry. And there's, there's a refusal to understand that you actually have to pay your workers in order to make your profit. Yeah. That, I'm that's, talk- that's human. It's human. And it's across the board, as, as you say, I mean, I'm talking to you today after the United auto workers have authorized a strike against three of the major mm-hmm. uh, automakers. Um, we had the great teamsters victory uh, just a few weeks ago uh, against U- UPS. Um, so I, I agree with you, Linda, that this is striking a chord with so many people because uh, I think Americans in general can relate to this um, in, in lot, you know, people who work in lots of different industries. And it's a real inspiration because, um, you know, despite the fact that unions are enjoying a moment of uh, historic 
popularity. Uh, union membership in this country is still at a relative low uh, with, uh, you know, only about 8% of American workers actually belonging to a union. So I think that what SAG-AFTRA and what the WGA are doing right now is inspirational. And I've really appreciated people coming on and, and talking and explaining these issues to our listeners because it's a great entry point for people. You know, why isn't my favorite television show coming yeah. back? <laughs> um, you know, why, what happened to all of those great, you know, summer blockbusters? We had Barbie and Oppenheimer and then there was sort of nothing. So what's going on? And it's a great entry point for people to learn about uh, about organizing and, and how mm -hmm. that's important to kind of keep a functioning economy that works for everyone. And understand how all those shows get made, how the sausage gets made. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Um, great. Uh, I did want to mention, you know, before we end today, I like to sort of highlight kind of either um, fun moments from the picket line or other, you know, interesting things that we see over the course of the week. How have the, how have you been experiencing the the picket lines? Do you have it's any been amazing? been yeah. amazing um uh that's kind of the silver lining of this whole weird stressful time is we're coming out of covid is still here and it's and like the covid separation we had is still kind of part of our our union culture where so much things shifted to zoom and not seeing mm -hmm. each other in person and on the strike lines you just see people coming and seeing each other again and being with each other again it's been great for solidarity it's been great for in new york we have four picket lines every monday i think oh is this the day people stop coming are we and then you know i'll get a, a text from a strike captain saying it's it's light here or there and then an hour later they'll say it's not light people are here people are here people are showing up everybody's feeling the solidarity and um that's been exciting. We had a great rally yesterday with the AFL-CIO and we're getting great um, support from our New York politicians in a way. Uh, Letitia great. James, the attorney general was at our rally yesterday and she was amazing. So it feels strong. It's very, we're getting a lot of support from all different quarters and that's exciting. Uh, that's that's great. It's great to see that it's still going. I When I spoke to uh, one of the um, one of the WGA members who's based in LA a few weeks ago about how the morale is on the picket line. She was saying that it's still great and just wait till it cools down a little bit and we're going to get our second <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah. We had to cancel for heat once or twice. And then I got a text saying, are we canceling today? It's hot. It's like, no, we're not canceling. <laughs> Um, I wanted to just uh, shout out this great um, eBay fundraising push that's been happening, the Union Solidarity Coalition um, the, with the proceeds to benefit uh, crew and healthcare funds. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of celebrities who are auctioning off, um, you know, very, very fun um different things for charity. So Natasha Leone will help you solve the New York Times Sunday crossword puzzle <laughs> right now. Uh, that is going for $4,550 oh, wow. with 43 bids. So wow. somebody, they, they better solve it. They better solve it in, in, in a couple of minutes. Um, there's other good ones on here. I think this that, is on eBay. This is on eBay. Yeah. Lita Dunham will paint a mural in your home right now. That's going for <laughs> $5,100. Um, you know, you do you, that's great. Um, and, uh, Adam Scott will walk your dog for one hour. If you live in LA and have a dog that's currently going 
for $2,500. So mm-hmm. there's about seven days left in this auction. There's lots of fun things on there on eBay. Check it out if you have the means and people are making kind of a funny memeified fake versions of these things. But um, you can get the apron, one of the aprons from the bear autographed by members of the cast. Uh, that's currently going for just over $2,000. So lots of fun things there. Um, Thank you so much for joining me today, Linda. Thank you. It was great to talk to you. It was really great to talk. Um, can people keep? Where can people keep up with you if they want to follow you on social media or see what you have going on? I'm on Instagram at Linda P N Y C. Thanks so much. Thank you.